Well, good evening and welcome. Uh, my name is Guy Stevens here with the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. We've got a great program today, um, but I want to tell you a little bit first about the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. Uh, we started this organi organization to raise awareness about the use of restraint and seclusion in schools across the nation. And our mission is really to help ch educate the public and uh, connect people together to dedicate it to changing minds, laws, policies, and practices so that we, we can reduce and eliminate restraint and seclusion in schools across the nation, really beyond. Uh, our vision is ultimately to see safer schools for students, teachers, and staff. Really excited today. I, I feel like I say that all the time, but but I'm really excited today. We've got a great guest. We've got Matthew Portell joining us today for a special interview. And I do want to let you know that we're going to be taking questions throughout the interview. So while uh, Beth and I will have plenty of questions, uh, we're going to be taking your questions as we go through as well. So it's a really great opportunity to ask questions and learn. Uh, I do want to let you know as well, today's event, as always, will be recorded. So this is being streamed right now on Facebook and YouTube, and it will be available later to watch on both of those platforms as well. And we also make it available as an audio podcast. So with that, let me introduce to you our wonderful co-host. So today we've got our, our lovely co-host, Beth. And uh, let me introduce Beth. Beth is the Director of Educational Strategy at the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. She retired in 2018, or, or so she thinks she retired. She's been really busy uh, since her retirement. <laughs> Uh, trying to help out with uh, the Alliance and many other things. But she retired in 2018 from a position in Virginia where she uh, was working for the lead agency in early intervention of infants and toddlers. She has experience uh, as a parent and as a grandparent of children who have had you know, behavioral challenges and has fueled her passion for improving lives of children and families through uh, education, mutual support, and advocacy. So as always, welcome, Beth. Thank you, Guy. I'm really glad to be here. Great, really great. <laughs> glad to have you here as as always. So let's let's uh, move uh, from you and I to to talking about Matthew. So if you would be so kind, I'm going to bring Matthew up on the screen. If you would introduce him, that would be fantastic. All right, it's a pleasure. I'm really excited to have Matthew here. Um, I heard of his work many I don't know how long ago anyway, and was excited to to learn more about how he did what he did with this school. So let me just give you a little background. He's been in education um, for 15 years, I think that's right, and has worked as a teacher, a teacher mentor, um, and in, let's see, instructional coach and a school administrator. The last five years have been as the principal at, um, I'll get it right here, Fall Hamilton Elementary, which is an internationally recognized um, innovative model school for trauma-informed practices and it's in metro nashville uh public schools it's a public school so this the work of this um school or the work of matthew and his colleagues at this school has been featured many places including uh national public radio uh there's a local documentary enough which i want to learn more about uh pbs edutopia and um there is one of the world's top educational practices website funded by the George Lucas Foundation resulted in over 700, 7 million views. So um, he has been, he's well known um, in terms of doing great work. And as I said, I had seen some of the articles and so forth, and I'm really excited that we have the opportunity to have him here. He has also um, introduced last year a um, trauma-informed educators network conference where people from around the world came to that 
And then the following September in 2019, he started a podcast uh, for the Trauma Informed Educators Network. Um, and he gets to interview people from all over the world uh, and learn about their journey to trauma informed practices. And we get to listen to it. It's really uh, tremendous. And I, you also have the, the webpage, the, uh, the Trauma Informed right? Educators Network. Yeah, and that's uh, that's actually Facebook, and I'm really excited that Guy was actually on the podcast uh, not too long ago. So, uh, yeah, so I it the network is a Facebook group. Yeah, mm -hmm. so uh, we're really glad to have you here. Absolutely, yeah, Matthew, I'm I'm really excited. You know, uh, I was lucky enough to get to uh, appear on your uh, podcast recently, and we had a great conversation. So. Building on that, I mean, we just had to talk more, and it was it was a pleasure to to be able to join you, and really excited to have you joining us here today. So, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. And you know, anytime we can talk about uh, any topics that that are around trauma informed, or um, you know, talking about the the elimination of seclusion and restraint, it's a conversation we should all be having in education right now. Absolutely. So we're going to start off with a couple questions here. And of course, I want to remind people in the audience, you're welcome to uh, ask your questions as well in the comments, and we'll be looking for those. Uh, but, you know, we're going to be talking a lot about the idea of trauma-informed approaches. And I don't want to make any assumptions here in terms of what people may know or, or be familiar with. You know, so for those in our audience that might not be familiar with the terminology, uh, I'm sure a lot of people have heard it, but can you explain to us what it means to be trauma-informed? And, you know, that's a million dollar question, to be quite honest. And you probably get uh, a million different answers from a million different people because there's all kinds of um, ideas and, and models and, you know, six steps and all of these different. But I, simply what I how I explain it is uh, utilizing relationships and uh, as a buffer for any trauma that a child may uh, have experienced um, in their lives to to ensure that their resiliency is built. Right. Um, and at the end of the day, there are all kinds of models out there. But to be sim simple, um, it's moving away from a compliance-based mindset to a relation-based uh, building mindset of we don't want kids to do what we ask them to do, or in some cases, even tell them, simply because I'm an adult. But we're going to work through this process together to build resiliency and so that we have a mutual uh, respect for each other. Um, because yes, adults need to respect children. So in a very simplistic way, that's how I describe what trauma-informed education is. And what I also would like to reiterate is um, a lot of times people think it's a program. Like where do I buy trauma-informed? You know, I've had one trauma-informed training, therefore I'm a trauma-informed. Here's what I tell people. This is a journey. It, it's, a, it's a mindset. It's a lifestyle, right? There is no end game. There is no, my school has done this, 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 therefore we're trauma-informed. Trauma-informed is a mindset. It's not a program that you can go buy uh, from an education company. It's it's how we operate using neuroscience as the basis for all decision making that we that we that we have in schools. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, that's a great point. I was just going to add <laughs> on to that. That you know, um, making the point that it's not something that we we buy or all these steps that we take. Um, it's also not something you necessarily get in an hour long training. I mean, it's something that requires a shift in mindset to kind of get that approach. And, and, you know, to be quite honest, uh, you know, we started with the training. That's where the conversation started mm -hmm. about what is this neuroscience and neurodevelopment around the impact of trauma on kids? And what does that look like when it manifests self, manifests itself in what we call behavior problems? Mm -hmm. You know, that it's not necessarily behavior problem. It's a 
reactiveness based off of an experience or even what they're experiencing now. Mm -hmm. So I think it it starts with training. Um, But I'm going to be honest, I couldn't tell you how many hours of training that I've received, including a certification in trauma and resiliency from the University of, of Florida. That was a self that was mine. And I still feel like I'm learning constantly from people of going, I didn't know that or wow. In my podcast, even talking to people like you going, never thought of that. And so it isn't a checklist. um, And I hope that um, I hope that people understand that. And here's when it comes to schools, you know, we have an attempt attack abandoned cycle in most schools. It's proven. Oh, we attempt to say that again. Yeah. We attempt something then we don't really attempt it fully. You know what I mean? And then we attack it that it doesn't work. And then we abandon it. And usually mm-hmm. those usually come in three year cycles. Right. Um, and I want people to say that this isn't something anybody can just attempt attack and abandon. Once you understand the neuroscience, once you understand the impact of trauma, you can't abandon it. And it becomes part of you. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of things that I want to say. First of all, I'm thrilled to hear you talk about the um, several things, the neuroscience, basis of it and the the idea that it's not a, a program. Uh, and I think where we run into trouble is that everyone wants, we're so used to everything being so structured. And indeed, we want structure for some of the things we're doing to give kids a feeling of safety, but it gets to this idea that we have to have a program that is specifically structured. And if we don't have it, we don't know what to do. And if we have it, we overstructure. And what you said is um just so beautiful about the key is relationship based and neuroscience and understanding you know our kids all of us have had trauma basically if you think about it that way um same kind of trauma have we had up until january we have definitely january and i i say that jokingly but i'm also very serious there is an intensity in my school i'm literally sitting in my conference room right now and i've been at school all day there's an intensity in my school that I've never felt. Um, and it's an intensity that is uh, is a thread amongst everybody, right? And I mean, the teachers, the parents, it's not escalation because I'm gonna be honest, we haven't had any behavior problems really. It's just this intensity that is in the air that I can't pinpoint that we all feel, if that makes sense. Well, let me ask you something, are the kids back in school then? Yes. So your kids are in school. Uh, 55% of my kids are in person right now. Okay. Uh, virtual. And so we have kids uh, since the first week of October that have been in school. And I'm going to be honest. Um, I think we had unrealistic or low expectations for our kids and they've exceeded any expectation we've had around our wow. protocols and expectations. I think the hardest one was when a child walks into the door the first week of school and they put their arms out, people say, well, did you actually hug them? And the answer was yes. Not for <laughs> I gave them a quick hug and I hurried them on because that is something that I couldn't tell no to a child who um, that's a normal, normal operating at our school uh, of if a kid. It's part we, of your we hug. We hug them because it's part of your culture. It's true. That's right. So, uh, so we he, just had a comment on the screen I wanted to share here. And and again, this was just somebody sharing. I always say in my parenting mantras, relationship first. And you, you know, you and I have had this talk before. My my uh, three R's of education are relationship, 
relationship, <laughs> relationship. Um, it's such an important factor in, in education. It's the most important. I mean, Absolutely. The day, you know, when we talked a bit earlier, it was, you know, when did you start this journey? And not, not knowing, I started this journey the day I walked into my classroom as a classroom teacher, as a fourth grade teacher of English learners, where um, relationships were the key, community was a key. I wanted every kid to feel part of my classroom, an integral part, like we couldn't operate without them. And I did that through identifying what I called at the time experts. And every kid is an expert of something, right? And I'm going to be honest and tell you, we do. I do that as a principal in my school. I make experts of all kinds of things with kids because they have to feel that there's a purpose, right? And they also have to feel that they're great at something. And every kid is great at something. So I want to know, you walked into your class, uh, and that's the way you started from the very beginning. What brought you to that point? I mean, it's beautiful. It's exactly what is so best for kids to feel a part of it, to feel... We always say what Dan Siegel and uh, Tina Payne Bryson, I always try to refer to her last name, um, is the scene soothes, safe and secure. Kids have to be seen. They have to be heard. They have to know that the kids love them. What made you, what was that 15 years ago? How, how did you get there when so many are so far away from that? You know, I, I truly, and I, I have been able to talk to educators across this country and even internationally, and I find a thread that the reason people get into education are for one of two reasons. They had an inspiring teacher that they just want to be like, or they had an awful educator that they don't want to be like. And I, I just have found that. Like, mm. why'd you get into education? Well, I had a teacher that inspired me. I had a teacher that I just I didn't want. And I'm going to be honest, I had amazing teachers when I was a kid, but there was one that really had me convinced I was going to amount to nothing. And I remember that feeling. And I vowed from the moment I walked into a classroom that there would be there would never be a child that felt like that in my presence. That every kid would feel seen, heard, empowered. And what we call here at my school, finding the innate genius in every kid. Oh. Um, because it, it, it's imperative. And, and I think that sometimes in, in the South, they call it bless their little hearts. You've ever heard of that phrase? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but what, what I see is around trauma-informed education is that's the last thing we want to do is bless a little heart. It's not about feeling sorry for a kid. It's not about feeling um, – it's about empathy, understanding, and being able to connect. But it's not about sympathy, like, oh, they've just – no, 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 no. Our kids have amazing capacity when supported with strong, stable, nurturing relationships – that invest that relationship into the child um, and let them know. Some of the strategies that I use is I have high expectations for my kids. And I don't mean like my own birth children. I'm talking about kids in my building. I just call them my kids because that's how it is. I have high expectations, but I also will support them to meet the expectation. And I think that's the power of so many kids who have experienced trauma, the resiliency piece that post-traumatic growth, right, of seeing that, man, if we can build build uh, structures and, and supports around kids who have experienced trauma, the research is clear when they come out, they are strong adults who can accomplish so much. And when we see that with our kids, 
Um, it, it gives a different lens. It's not, I'm not blessing hearts. I'm supporting yeah. kids to success. And that's, I think, a big key. And and I, I love the question that Linda has asked um, or uh, over in the, the chat was, um, you know, what is the feedback that you get from parents? I'm going to be just brutally honest because that's how I operate. <laughs> some parents get it and some parents are like, I'm not even going to say what they normally say. They, they talk about just needing a butt whooping. And mm -hmm. I explained to them, right? I explained to them the neuroscience. My, the adults get it when you explain it. Like, let me explain to you what happens when. And then let me explain to you why we do what we do. When that happens, you can see like, hold on a minute. That paradigm shift that Beth, you've probably experienced. Guy, I know you've experienced it because we've talked about it. That paradigm shift of going, hold on a minute. Nobody's ever told me this about the brain. Mm -hmm. Nobody's ever told me this about the impact of trauma. And I always say, do you, as a parent, do you trust me? And if they say yes, then I say, then trust me. I promise you, I'm never going to do anything that's going to be in the detriment of your child. Suspension is a detriment to kids. Seclusion and restraint is a detriment to kids. Like we don't do those things um, because it's a detriment to kids. And I think that, those conversations just have to happen um, through, again, relationships. Absolutely. Relationships with my families. Absolutely. So you're now in your fifth year, right, at, at Fall Hamilton. This is uh, six. Six year. Okay, okay. Um, <laughs> and that's in that's in Tennessee. Can you, can you tell us, I'm going to give you a multi-parter here, if you can tell us a little bit about your school and, and maybe what it was like when you first arrived and, and kind of some of the things that you did to transform it into a trauma-informed school. So... I really truly don't know if my district ever likes me telling them the truth about what it was like when I first got here. But uh, I, I, I actually take a lot of the responsibility because I wasn't um, I'd done a lot of different roles. I had seen a lot of different perspectives, including being an instructional coach for our school district. Um, but I didn't know what it was really like to be a principal. And I think for those that may be listening who want to be administrators, I'm going to be honest and tell you, you don't know until you know. Um, and that's what happened my first year. I was what I say principaling like I thought I was supposed to be principaling. Um, and honestly, uh, it wasn't good. Um, I in, in the January of my very first year of um, of being a principal, uh, I just had that internal dialogue with myself going, this is not working like my adults weren't disgruntled. They weren't angry, but they just weren't thriving. And the kids were struggling and I was struggling. And I happened to be invited to a, um, a, 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 to a talk. And it was a neuroscientist from Vanderbilt, which is a university literally right down the street from my school, um, and an assistant principal. And they were talking about these things called ACEs. And I was like, what are ACEs? Like, I've never heard of ACEs. So they went into neuroscience. They went into the, the ACEs study with Kaiser Permanente and the CDC. And I mean, when I tell you a reality smack guy and Beth, I mean a reality smack. Um, in that moment, that paradigm shift, because that's what it was. The way that I saw how, what and what, how I was doing changed instantly. I realized what I was doing to kids isn't what I should be doing for kids. Mm -hmm. We were restraining kids, guy. And this just makes my skin crawl to say this weekly if mm. not daily mm. um and matter of fact the the child who i i swear she was the one that that made this paradigm shift for me um i got to see her not too long ago and now she's in high school but 
she and I don't ever tell a child's trauma story because it's not mine to tell, but I can tell that she's been in, she experienced incomprehensible trauma. Mm. Um, while she was my student, before she was my student, after she's left, it's continued. Um, and I remember her being my, my light bulb going, oh my gosh, like we are hurting this child, not physically, but breaking her emotionally. Um, and that's when it started. I came back to my team. I said, this is what we're going to do. We've got to shift. Um, the first thing I did was ban clip charts. Hmm. Public humiliation doesn't work, right? Doesn't work for, and, and here's how I did it. And, and my staff will probably laugh uh, every time they hear me. But I said, okay, if you all want to continue to use clip charts, I'm going to use it in faculty meetings. And so if you pull out your phone, I'm going to say, Miss Smith, we'll sit down because you have your phone out and that's disrespectful. And then we're just going to keep moving on because that's not a big deal, right? We're just making you get up and move a clip. Um, and that was like, breaks were on. And I remember <laughs> I remember the uh, question of, well, what do we do instead? And the big R word, the three R's, was where we focused our energy, relationships, relationship, relationship. Um, and that's where the paradigm began. When we um, started, I, I started reaching out to the local community, including university. and uh, my school um, was one of the very first trained in adverse childhood experiences research um, from the state. I'm so proud to tell you that our state has gone beyond leaps and bounds above what we ever anticipated. That's great. Um, and, and it started with, we, I just had to get the information to my staff. And this is, um, thank you for doing that. This is where I keep seeing such a frustration of how, locked in, um, not just staff, not just teachers, not just schools, but uh, um, the TA organizations, the, the uh, national and the state are locked into the way we've always done things. Um, and the fact that you were able to break through that, um, get people to, to have that aha moment. You had your own aha moment, and then you helped other people have the aha moment. It, which you have to do in order for people to be open to learning. And I saw someone commented about uh, one, the best teachers are ones who can say, uh, I made a mistake. And I'll say the same thing is true of parents and grandparents. Um, I think sometimes it's through our mistakes that we have the, the greatest breakthroughs. Um, but we have to be able to right? learn. Like the definition of learning, and I find it so interesting that we punish kids. So I think, and this scenario has been given so many times. If we have a child come in and they don't know how to read, what do we do? We put interventions in place. We support them in reading. We teach them one on one. If a child has a struggle in mathematics, we do the same. But in our schools, when a child has a struggle, we we punish, we exclude, we seclude, we restrain, we. Like it just doesn't make any at, at the point of which we started our journey. It made no logical sense. Um, and and I, I like that you said that I, I kind of had tried to get people to get that big breakthrough. And I'm going to be honest with you both. Um, I didn't ask for permission. I started this without asking anyone anywhere in my school district if we could try it. I just did it. And, you know, professional risk, <laughs> just that, like. But um, I refer to myself as an unapologetic disruptor in that I'm always, and, and I had a great mentor, Dr. David Moore, 
who from the moment I walked into the classroom always said, always follow your ethics, always follow your heart, do what's best for kids. That's how it started. I didn't actually ask mm -hmm. for permission. Which, thank goodness it worked because it could have well, been. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, so, it's sometimes it's better to beg forgiveness than ask permission, right? Exactly. Yeah, I, I think I think we talked a little bit about that. So yeah. let's talk about some of the specific changes you put into place. You know, aside from the clip charts, what are some of the changes you put in place? Because I remember watching a video about uh, about your school, and there were some things that really impressed me. So, what are some of the things that you did, not just to, to um, support the students, but also the staff? Well. That, that's a great question. And I think it's imperative for everybody to understand this has absolutely nothing to do with kids when you're talking about implementation. Kids aren't changing, you all. Like this ain't about fixing kids because the kids aren't broken. This is about fixing broken systems. And that starts with the adults. So I think the first thing that we did um, systematically was, of course, the professional development and training. And I made it real. I brought people who had experienced trauma and told their, were willing to tell their stories and about what made a difference, which was educators. Um, so it was a combination of that. And then secondly, my philosophy was I have to support my adults as much as I support the kids. So if I'm telling the adults, this is what I hope to see with you and kids, I have to do the same thing for them, which mm -hmm. is when we came up with the term pre-forgiven. And that was we're going to make mistakes. Like I'm going to come in with a bad day and I'm going to pop off on somebody like, but understanding, like we all have to operate in this idea of pre forgiveness of going, that's not really what they meant. I'm sure something's going on. And then following up with the conversation of, Hey, is everything all right? I realize you seem pretty frustrated. Um, and then after that, we started our tap in and tap out system where we were trying to get teachers um, to understand the power of co-regulation and exploration. Mm. And so, um, you know, I have a quote that has been flying around social media for a while. And then that is a de an, an escalated adult cannot de-escalate an escalated child. And so uh, Dr. Cernobori in our district, she said, um, you can't, you got to pull a child into your calm. Don't let them pull you into their storm. And that Amen. was really a premise of a lot of what we talked about. So that tap in and tap out system was, was literally um, if I'm as an adult feeling escalated, whether it's because of personal things outside of school, whether it's a child that's pushing my buttons, because let's be honest, some kids, that's just, that's their normal. I need to get, I need, I need this. Right. And so instead of getting sucked into the storm, I'm going to put a pause button. Um, I'm going to go to uh, my little app, which is literally on my phone. We use group me. I don't, there's no, I, I don't know. We don't get anything from group me other than the effectiveness of the app. And it goes out to the whole faculty. I need a tap out. So that vulnerability wow. is so powerful when it comes to building capacity of educators, because we're told, and goodness sakes, our principal's the worst at this. We have to hold it down no matter what. That's not true. Like you got to know when you hit your capacity mm -hmm. and you don't have to work past that because it doesn't you can't function. Um, so that was a big one. Another one was teaching de-escalation to the kids directly. Mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. We expect them, you know, I tell this story all the time. You know, I only told my wife to calm down one time when he was up there. <laughs> you know, that's not a good strategy. But how many times do you hear schools tell kids, right. you need to calm down? Right. Like, no, not a good strategy. Right. Now, what we can do is say, let's breathe five times together. I'm going to take a deep breath in my nose. We're going to smell the flower. We're going to blow out the candle. We're going to smell the flower. We're going to blow out the candle. Get that done. Or we can 
tighten and release, tighten and release. We can go get a drink of water. There's all kinds of strategies. So we did that and we coupled that with peace corners, which are a space to actually use those strategies because we had an elopement issue. Kids were running out of our classrooms like crazy. And my school uh, counselor, Dr. Schroeder, who I've referred to as Yoda because she is the keeper of alt knowledge, and said, Portel, you realize why they're running out of the room. They need somewhere to go. They feel safe. She's like, so why don't we build a space in a classroom? That sounds brilliant. So mm-hmm, we mm-hmm. it worked. That's great. That's great. So, you know, um, change is never easy. And and people aren't always excited about change. And, and especially when we're talking probably about you know, teachers and staff. So when you, when you come in with a lot of, uh, a lot of excitement about change and, and bringing in different programs, how did people respond? Was everybody on board? How did you get people on board? How did you, how did you, how did that, the staff react to that? Well, such a good question. <laughs> well, after year one, when we really, so January, we started the monthly PD, January, February, March, April, May. And then I have, I do this anyways, um, but being my first year, it's actually the first year I started. I have exit conversations with every staff, faculty and staff member. I sit down for 20 minutes. I ask them three questions. What went well? What would you like to see change? And what are you looking forward to next year? Those are the three things that I ask. And then I give the mission for the following year. Like this is what we're going to be focusing on. And I'm going to be honest and tell you 50% of my staff left. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask you that. And at the end of the day, <laughs> some of them needed to leave. <laughs> no foul. Like they're great human beings, but they didn't fit their, their mindset didn't fit the school's mission and vision. Right. And I think what we did that first year is we actually redid the whole school's vision and mission. Um, and we realigned all of it to start pointing towards relationships and seeing the capacity of our kids. Right. Um, and even this year, we had all this time with COVID. We realigned our mission. We didn't change it, but we realigned it. And we came up with our core values as a school, not as Matthew Portel, the principal, because they're not my values. You know, I have the vision and the mission and I have to help guide that. But the values are from the community of, of us as a school, our parents mm-hmm, our mm-hmm. and our teachers. So we came up with our core values. Um, and that, again, was just a, a nice little rudder of realignment during a pandemic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We had time. And so I think it's a constant ongoing piece of fall. I am not fall Hamilton. Right. I am the principal of fall Hamilton. My teachers and my kids and my families are Fall Hamilton. I'm mm-hmm. the one that is able to be the principal of it. Um, and if something were happened to me today, I want that legacy of who we are as a school to carry on. And that can't be me just mandating everything. Um, so right now, um, it started two years ago, two, three, three years ago. We now have a candidate letter. Every candidate before you even walk into um, interview at our school you know who we are because we mm-hmm. outlined the candidate letter. If this doesn't fit into your philosophy of education, then don't be here. Because when I tell you we're not suspending a kid, I really mean we're not suspending a child. And so those people, they tried, you know, there was some people that tried it first and you could tell, mm, I don't know if you actually believe this. <laughs> no, really, we're not, we're not suspending them. Um, and now it's just teachers don't even want it. Um, cause they know it doesn't benefit kids. 
Right, right. Beth? And the, your culture is probably much calmer too for everybody. Yeah, and and a thing is vulnerability is key um, in all work in education, right? But I I display that vulnerability. Y'all, if I struggle, I let my staff know I'm struggling right now. I mean, my mom is dealing with major health issues, and I was honest with my with my staff. You know, she's she's dealing with a cancer diagnosis and a broken hip, and um, those things weigh on us as human beings. And I wasn't afraid to say that in front of my staff. Mm -hmm. I have an amazing staff. So I have two questions for you. You lost a, a huge percentage of staff the first year. So one question, I got to give you both first because my head won't hold both of them. Uh, so one of them was, one question is, how hard was it to get staff back? And then the next question I won't give it, but I'll tell you, it's about um, disproportionality. So I want to address that after you hit the staff thing. So um, how hard was it to get staff? Not hard at all. And uh, okay. we, we're in a large urban district and 90,000 kids. We have about 650 million universities in this. Oh. So everything from Vanderbilt to Belmont to Trevecca to, I mean, they're just a ton. So candidates are never a problem. And I know rural counties, when I've spoken around the country, it is a major problem. Okay. And the one question I always got was, well, how do you get rid of the people that don't believe it? <laughs> I answer that question. I coach until you're not coachable. Mm -hmm. And then we have really hard conversations um, because at the end of the day, we are committed to supporting everybody in this building. Um, so adults. quick follow up before Beth gets to the second question. Um, in in um, nope, now I'm losing my second question. <laughs> I'm so worried about making sure I got your question there that, that I lost it. But uh, what I was going to say is that, in, in doing what you've done and, and now getting national and international recognition for what you're doing, are you finding that that's actually a magnet to pull people in? Are people coming to your school now because they've heard about the great things you're doing? Isn't that an amazing story that I hear, you see your head shaking? And isn't that amazing that if you do great things that people are going to want to join you, right? And, and I will be honest, we have families. And I, this, you all, is, a, is an honest story. Um, we had a car pull up in front of the school and this mom got out and I noticed the whole back of her car was full, including her child. And she said, you're not going to believe this, but I have packed my things and I have moved here from Illinois because I saw your school and you are the last you have. And I'll tell you the weight I like. So I said, I need you to come into the school. Like, let's just go talk because. We do everything we can, but we are also honest with families like we're doing this and this is what we need from you. And if we're if it's not our capacity, we will be honest. Um, and boy, that was an eye opener. As far as faculty and staff, um, I've also learned that people can do an Internet search and tell you all kinds of great things um, because they just watch it. And they're like, oh, I can say this. But when the rubber hits the road. And the days get hard. That's where it really becomes a challenge for a lot of educators who um, maybe haven't worked with a population of students that um, have a high percentage of kids with trauma. Um, and so it's it's more difficult than than people ever give it credit. And Beth, I'm, I don't mean to put you off again, but this question okay. is really related to to what you're saying. And this is coming from a third grade teacher, which is. How do we help kids that come from parents who do not value education at all? And, um, you know, um, so how, how would you address that in terms of, um, you know, background? 
Yeah. So Amy, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna respectfully say something, and I hope you don't take it wrong. But we have to be cognizant of our uh, potential bias, and I'm gonna tell you why. Some parents are operating at capacity, and it may seem, or there may even be indication that they don't care. Um, and I will tell you, I have I'm a Title One school. I have a high population of, of of families in poverty. I have a lot of families that. If you look at it from a perspective um, without digging deep, it could be a perception they don't care about education. But what I've learned is in the moment, given the situation, some of them don't have the capacity to make that a priority. And if we go to the hierarchy of need, some of them are at the very bottom of that hierarchy of safety and security. Um, and so I, what I do is I validate parents because I'm going to be honest, I am one. I've served as a foster parent for 18 months to two children who had extreme incomprehensible trauma. Being a parent is a thousand times harder than being a principal. It is. There's no guidebook. You parent how you were parented for the most part, unless you know and learn how to do better. Um, it's a struggle. And so I, first of all, share that with my parents. And I think what I've learned is most parents value education, but some don't see it in the moment. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of our parents have been burned at school. Um, their experiences so, have been awful. So you're using the same approach with parents that you yes. do with kids. You establish a relationship. Right, right. Um, and, and mind you, 85% of my, my students are black and brown. I'm a... I'm fully aware I'm a white dude with a beard and I drive a pickup truck. No joke. <laughs> a lot of stereotypes, right? And I'm, I'm conscious of me as a human and them as humans and understand the historical trauma and all of the racial trauma and all of these pieces. I don't expect them to trust me at the beginning. You know, and that's something I don't impose. However, so many parents do just because I'm the principal. And I say, no, 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 you just need to get to know me. And once I get to know families, the relationship is, I mean, they would do anything for me and I would do anything for them. Yeah. And a great related comment here. And I know we've talked before about the work of Dr. Ross Green and Ross famously says that kids do well if they can. Well, this comment says parents do well if they can. And I absolutely believe that. And I believe teachers do well if they can. Um, so, you know, um, sometimes there are a lot of factors that are going on that people are not aware about. But but I love your approach of, of again, it's about relationship with the parents. And I remember you telling me a story about, you know, a parent you had built a relationship with. And, you know, I mean, it's just amazing what what things can happen when you take the time to invest in relationships and stop, uh, you know, making initial assessments or judgments based on things that are often not true. What's no. the next one? Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm going to, I, I want to make one comment. And, and most people in this line of work are very familiar with Jim Spoiletter, um, who mm -hmm. was from Paper Tigers and was the principal of Walla Walla. He's authored a couple different books. Um, but he, he and I were able to sit down and have some conversations at a conference when we were speaking and I, and I even asked him, I said, what is the one thing you would change if you went back as a principal? And he said, I didn't give, my trauma-informed mindset wasn't the same with my parents. And one thing that we have to be mm -hmm. is we have to operate in that same space for parents. Traumatized children, if not build strong, stable, nurturing relationships and the skills of resiliency, grow up to be traumatized adults, right? And there's nev it's never too late to provide and intervene with strong, stable relationships. 
Um, and I have a parent that is textbook for that. The man has taught me so much because of his resilience. And literally he used to come in, he's been through a divorce. He's been through all kinds of things. He would come in and just say, I have to have somebody talk to. And I would listen to him and I thought, man, I am learn like, you're changing me as a human and, and you just need me to listen. Um, yeah. So what I hear from you, uh, I hear so much great stuff. One of the things I hear is that you are continuously open to learning. You take up every opportunity to, you, you have somehow, uh, and this is a challenge for me, I know I have to work on not being defensive or not being frustrated because what I intended didn't happen the way I hope it, it uh, happened. I, you seem to me like you're really good at self-reflection and, and that I know is something that's, that's important in the work we're trying to do. I also wonder, it makes me wonder, are you doing reflective um, um, supervision? Uh, I'm familiar with it, but no, but I am, I've always been given feedback on my little principal observations that I'm extremely reflective, right? And I, yeah. it comes down to ownership. Like I have to own it. Um, and you know how many parents I've had to apologize? Do you know how many teachers I've had to apologize to? Do you know how many students I've had to apologize to? Um, because at the end of the day, we have to model what we want to see. And I'll, I'll give you a very quick little story. And it's so ironic because now, like, I just, the, this parent is amazing. The first day of school, she came to pick up a kindergartner and just wanted to stomp into the, into the school and just go snatch him up. And I said, that you can't, like, you can't. And she became extremely escalated. She was cussing at me, calling me names. And I zero tolerance her off the campus, which is not a good idea, you all. It's not a good idea. So a week later, I was like, what have I done? Like, I didn't even give her a chance. So I had her come in and we started having conversations. I got to the core of why she was so upset and 100% was valid. It was all about protecting her kid and somebody not telling them that she can't see her kid or have her kid was a trauma trigger, right? Once I got to the core of that, that ZT went away. That parent is so supportive. So amazing. She comes here and drops the kid off every day. Um, boundaries were broken. And it's only because I had to get rid of my perception mm -hmm. and listen to her perspective. And it changed everything. And I think that goes with <laughs> that goes with every situation, to be honest. Teachers, staff, adult, everybody. Amazing my what happens when we listen, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, you're making me think of something I wanted to say back in the very beginning. Because you say you don't formally use a practice of self-reflection. But I bet if you looked at the formal training, you're doing a lot of it, um, which makes me go back to the beginning when you said it's not a program. It's you learn this through where your your values were driving you. And as you got information, you implemented it. And it's basically neuroscience and relationship and not a program, I think one of our barriers is that from the way we've been educated, especially old people like me, <laughs> there was only one right answer. There was only one way to do something. We had to, we had to measure everything we did and we needed to get it right. There wasn't time to learn because you, you had this little learning period and then you got tested on it. It's, it, there's so much, um, we're not used to the freedom to, uh, do what needs to be done 
Um, so I, I really appreciate you bringing both those things out. Well, and I think too, we, you know, we do use a program, but it's not for trauma informed. It's just to support the culture of the school. And it's called mm-hmm. the Me, and we teach the seven habits of highly effective people. Oh, I love it. Kids, right? Now they didn't know they're actually trauma informed by by design because it's all about empowerment and finding kids and eight genius. And, um, but there's a habit that most people don't know about under the seven habits and it's the eighth and it's find your voice. And it's the one that resonates with our kids the most because that's what I want kids to leave my school with. I want them to leave with reading and writing and math and, and understanding social studies and science, but I also want them to find their voice because that's what's going to make a difference in their lives. And it's very unfortunate. I was about 24 or 25 before I actually found mine. Mm. And I remember that feeling of going, hold on a minute. Like, I don't have to stay in this space that people have been telling me. And I came in education later because I was told for so many years that I wasn't going to amount to anything. Oh. And, and I, 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 I live with that in my mind all of the time. And I see kids and I think you're being told the same thing. Um, and I try to inspire and empower because it's it's important. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm going to bring up a quick comment here and I'm going to turn it into a question. Um, and the comment was schools are often so uh, highly uh, invested in behavior approaches, you know, PBIS and things like that. And, and one of the things that, that you know, we've found is that, you know, very often it's it's the mindset, like you said, it's this compliance based mindset. Um, you will do what I say because I. I'm the person in authority. And, you know, what we found when it relates to things like restraint and seclusion is often kids become escalated because, you know, they, they don't feel safe and, and they've had trauma and and teachers sometimes well-meaning, but but compliance based are escalating rather than de-escalating the situation. Uh, so my, my question is, is for you. I mean, you know, when we look at these things and, and a lot of these things go back to behaviorism approaches that, again, sometimes aren't really understanding what's going on beneath the surface, sometimes don't take into account what background a child might have. How do we, how do we shift away from that? Even, even beyond your school as a nation, how do we shift away from some of those things? You all, we're talking about deep-rooted systems um, in, in our education system. And I'm going to be honest. Like, and I, there, I may have staff on here listening, and if it is, great. Then I just ripped the band-aid off. So um, we still have fragments of that in my building and and it's they're amazing educators who are still on that journey and I think that that's one piece we have to be cognizant of because an administrator that I have my mindset other people are in different phases of this journey and so I have to support and I have to adjust and shift the paradigm by supporting them out of it right as a system you all, I mean, let's be honest, like we have a design system for school to prison pipeline. And we already know you had asked about the disproportionality of brown and black kids. Like it's there and it's undeniable and it makes people uncomfortable to talk about it. But then again, I don't care because yeah. it's uncomfortable. Um, and if we don't try to break those systems of oppression that have been on us for hundreds of years in our education system, then we are part of the problem. So but what I also say is the science has changed. I mean, the, I was looking at uh, somebody posted on social media about a 1920s parenting book. And I was like, they're like, don't give your child attention. Don't look them in the eye. Don't hug them. Like right. we know better in the words of, of Dr. Bruce Perry. We have to do better. 
And so I think we have to get the information out. Jim Sporler also says there's not enough trauma trainers in this country or in this world. We have to be getting this information into the hands of educators. And the documentary Resilience has a line that just resonates with me all the time. And that is, if you get the science into the hands of the general population, they will invent wisely. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of why you do what you do and what I do, what I do. And that's we have to get this information out and people are going to have to demand a shift in, in the way we structure schools because it's archaic. Um, but yet it's so rooted and grounded. Mm-hmm. I mean, pulling a tree up, you all, is really difficult. You got to kind of start, if you're doing it with your hands, you got to kind of unravel it. Um, and that's where we are right now. But I hope one day we can look back at this and go, man, can you believe we were talking about that? And that, that that's so far gone. Um, because what, what I hear all the time is, oh, the kids are changing. The kids are changing. Right, that's right. Like the world has changed around us. Mm-hmm. The are, they have access to things we never would. They're learning things we've nev- we would never even have considered. Um, so we can't compare our experiences to theirs because it's non-comparable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, great point. And I want to remind people that are watching, because we've got quite a few po- people watching live now, that if you have questions, I know Beth and I could ask questions all day long, and we have a lot of them. Uh, love, love the conversation. But if you have questions you'd like to ask um, for Matthew, please feel free to put those in the uh, chat as we go. And I know I've seen a lot of comments. So if I miss anything, uh, don't hesitate to put something in there again. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to take a break and let people uh, know that they can ask questions as well. I have a burning question. That is, you you talked about the pressure when the woman moved to your district to be at your school. And, um, and none of us can promise to be the answer uh, all the time. I'm curious, have you had many times when you said, I can't reach this child, this is not the right place for this child? Yeah. And honestly, that was one of the situations. We did everything we could for almost a full year and, and we didn't send him home. Um, we, are, we are a typical public school who takes a completely different approach. We mm-hmm. don't have additional resources. We don't have additional. We have a ton of additional training by design. Now, I will tell you, since even that date, we have more staff um, because I've we've determined it to be a priority. So um, right now, I have two restorative practices um, specialists, which are actually a license, so both licensed social workers. My school counselor is a trained therapist. Um, my SEL, my social emotional team, and my academic team are actually the same size because I'm saying if we're saying this matter, then we're going to invest in it. Um, and there are times in which safety becomes a major concern and capacity um, because. Uh, you know, every every child brings a challenge. Just be honest. No matter if they, it's external, internal. There, there, there's challenges that are always going to be in existence. But I don't ever want anybody to think that we're going to fix kids because, again, they're not broken. Do we have the capacity to provide this amount of support they need? In some situations, we have not. Um, and right now, we have we are a destination school for kids who have behavior problems. And I put that behavior in quotations because a lot of it isn't behavior. Um, yeah, parents mm-hmm. are coming from all over the city. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of adoptive parents, to be honest, um, are now bringing kids here because um, they 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 know we get it and mm-hmm. not putting kids out. Uh, it's, it's 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 interesting for sure. So one of 
Uh, just just bring up a quick question here. Sorry. Um, so this question from Lauren, what types of professional development would you recommend for a culture shift towards relationships, not compliance within a large building with a high teacher turnover rate? School is similar uh, demographics, but uh, the largest in the district, 900 kids plus 100 plus teachers and staff. So, man, 900 kids in one building is massive. And I've worked in a thousand building elementary schools, so I get it. I mean, I'm going to be honest, some of the teachers didn't even know each other um, because it was so large. What I would say is from a teacher standpoint, right, um, there's different perspectives. Obviously, you would want an administrator who believes and is on board and would provide professional development on a, uh, on a global scale for the school and a culture shift. Um, and that would start with the brain science for sure, without doubt. People have to understand what trauma does to the brain. Um, and then I would start building the capacity in there, the power of relationships and what does relationships do to a tra traumatized brain. We've gotten as deep as what is implicit bias and how does it creep into our school, mm -hmm. creep into our classroom. Talk about an intense conversation, you all. So it's funny that I that we were asked, we need to do some implicit bias training. I said, I agree. Um, and so we had uh, somebody from the university come in and they talked about implicit bias. And the teachers were like, nope, that's not what we needed. We need to talk about our own bias. Like we need to dig. And I'm like, really? Okay, let's do it. So I brought a facilitator in and we started writing things down that we heard adults say in the building. And we started dissecting these things and talking about how does bias creep in? Um, so I think it, it it's different perspective. As an individual educator and teacher, read, read, read. Listen to podcasts. Um, you know, when I started getting on this journey, of course, I read The Boy uh, Who Was Raised as a Dog. Right? Mm -hmm. um, Jim Sporletter's book of the Trauma-Informed Schools Guidebook. I read For Help for Billy. I read The Deepest Well. I mean, I was reading everything I could get my hands on. Um, and that kind of helped shift my mindset. Um, but it starts with the science, and then you just have to start thinking about relationship-based strategies. Um, one that we use is Kagan Cooperative Learning. People are like, that's not trauma-informed. Oh, it's all about relationships and connection and affirmation and, and, and working together as a classroom and empowerment. So I think anything that you would do in professional development, if you shift the mindset to be a, looking at a trauma-informed approach, Everything becomes trauma informed if you can process it through that filter. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, there's different layers, I think, to that professional development. Yeah, and that's great. I, I love that you made the point about um, just reading on your own as well. I mean, it's not always the professional development you're going to sit in at school, but it's picking up a copy of Beyond Behaviors from Mona Della Hook or you know, Lost at School from Ross Green and, and, and doing some of your own. I mean, you know, I know that a number of those books kind of led to a lens change for me. And, you know, I think that, you know, the training's helpful, but sometimes it's, it's even changing your own personal lens. Fact. Um, and that's true. And in those books that you mentioned, uh, uh, you know, uh, Connection Before Correction from uh, Lori Desitels that just came out. Like All of these books, you all, I think sometimes we wait for people to give us the information when we have to seek it. Um, mm -hmm. We have to go out and consume it and process it. And, and you know, we've talked before, Guy, that, and even Beth, all of these people we're talking about don't necessarily all have the same philosophy, but boy, mm -hmm. do they have insight. And boy, do they have pieces of the puzzle that we're all utilizing to put together uh, in a way that would make sense in a trauma-informed approach. And so I think I would encourage any, and I saw that she said she was a teacher and aspiring admin. 
Mm-hmm. Read, read, read. I mean, read, read, read. Mm-hmm. And again, and- then try, innovate. You know, for so long, schools are like, we need to be innovative. But when you try something, they're like, why are you doing that? That's a, Don't do that. That's not what we're supposed to do. Try it. If, yeah. especially if you're in your classroom, you know you can close that door. You yeah. know you can do those things. Yeah, and, and finding finding your people too isn't isn't a bad uh, start. Yeah. You know, f- following following you and, and you know, I mean, I think about the trauma informed educators group that you have on Facebook. That's probably a great place to throw out questions like that. Like, hey, what are you doing? What's been helpful? Yeah. So you know, finding other people that are really interested in this journey. You know, the podcast that you offer, I know does amazing interviews with people that have a lot of background in this as well. So there's probably a lot of ways that people can get information. Guys, it's funny you say that about the podcast because I selfishly started the podcast for my own learning. I'm just going to be honest. I'm <laughs> people and how do I pick their brains? I'll do a Matthew, podcast. what do you think we're doing here today? I'm learning. Really? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I do encourage people to listen. There's some amazing work in that podcast. Um, I, I always sit yeah. in awe and even speaking to you, I just leave going, wow, like, we have so much work to do, but wow, so much has been done. Um, and then the Trauma Informed Educators Network group on Facebook, it's 26,000 people. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a large group. Of course, things creep in that you're like, what? where did this come from, right? Um, but we try to monitor it and we do try to keep it as focused as possible. There's some hard conversations that happen. Um, again, everybody's on a journey. And I think um, I'm, I'm just going to be blunt and say there's a snootiness right now in the trauma informed world that we've got to back up. We can't attack people because they say things that we don't agree with. Understand we're all on different journeys. We can't say, well, you can't think of that because that's this and this is that. And that's not, no, 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 no. We have to habit five, seek first to understand, then to be understood. Understand where somebody's coming from before you ever respond. Because all that does is it doesn't help in situations. Now, there's some situations absolutely we need to stand up against. Racism, right? Public humiliation. Um, using tactics in schools that are ethically wrong. Um, those are things that absolutely, but when you're talking about some of these nuances within this work, we have to be cognizant and, and we have to understand people are on a journey. Mm-hmm. And that's back to the mindset about one right answer, one right way, um, instead of being guided by principle and guided by values, uh, which is what I hear you saying. And what, as I look at all the different folks who are leading the way with the trauma-informed and the neuroscience and the relationship base. It's not a do this and this. It is a uh, an understanding, uh, a philosophy. And there was something, and I expect that with your, what I heard you saying in the very beginning uh, made me think that uh, you talked about supporting the kids, that so instead of criticizing, shaming, um, punishing them, you give them the kind of support they need, which is, of course, what we want. And and we see that that is not happening across the country. When you see um, statistics that say kids with disabilities make up 13% of the population, but 80% of the kids who are restrained and 77%. So I'm going to ask you just a quick question. Uh, I know that you, you can't always have all the supports you need, but I expect that some of the supports you provide are not expensive. It's just doing things a different way. Can you speak a little bit to how you provide the support? What kind of support you provide that in another school might have gotten a kid um, for a behavior or whatever, might have gotten a kid? They don't cost anything. It's a skill, right? It's learned. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so we explicitly teach de-escalation to our staff um, through a variety of things. One of them is it does cost, but at the end of the day, you don't have to have it. For goodness sakes, YouTube is full of how to teach de-escalation, right? So de-escalation is one of those things that we do. And we, again, going to tap in and tap out, literally a school could walk out right now, go to GroupMe, create a tap in, tap out, ask all the teachers who were willing or wanted to be a part of this group of support for each other. And that's implementable right now, no cost, zero, you can do it tomorrow, right? Peace Corner, we're not allowed to do Peace Corners right now because of COVID. Um, However, Peace Corners are something you can implement in your classroom right now, whether your colleagues believed in it or not, or your principal believed in it or not, right? Co-regulation costs nothing. Being able to keep myself calm in a situation to calm you. Habit five, seeking first to understand, then to be understood, right? Having that time to pause and figure out the situation as opposed to worrying about compliance. Why are they asking? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, We have a greeting team, even right now during COVID, and I'm part of it. At the front door, we greet every single kid every single day. We even open their car doors for them and tell the parents, good morning. Thank you for being here. Those are subtle pieces that take nothing. So about de-escalation, one of the things that in in terms of, you know, our issue with restraint and seclusion, one of the things that we find is that very often the organizations that are teaching de-escalation are the same organizations that are teaching you how to restrain children. And uh, (laughs) I see that reaction. Um, And and I've had an opportunity to look over some of the manuals from some of that training. and, And they say things that I find really alarming, things like, Imagine at any moment that a child might become violent. And if your assumption when you're working with kids is that that kid might become violent at any moment, um, you're operating under a a context that is going to make you more active to be reactive and to restrain, seclude, suspend, expel. So how do you, how do you, uh, well, I'll just let you address that (laughs) however you'd like. Um, How how do we get around that? If I, if there is a child who is escalating and I don't have a relationship with them, First of all, I'm going to try to locate the person in the building that has the best relationship. That's number one. And there are kids that I don't have a strong relationship with for whatever reason, right? I don't have to respond to everything. We have a, we have a, like, like, you know, I need you to do this or I need you to do that. When we have called for social emotional support, we say we need the first name and last initial or the first name of the child. That determines who's going to to show up, right? Mm -hmm. When it comes to de-escalation, it's a skill. It really is. And I'm going to be honest. The first year we implemented trauma-informed practices, we got a grant from our state because they invested $1.25 million in ACEs awareness and innovation. We had full reign on to do whatever we wanted to try to figure this out. So we hired a therapist and I followed her around like a puppy. I swear to God. I thought she was going to like pull out this little wand and be like, and the kids just stopped because she could de-escalate him so quickly. And I'm like, what is she doing? Like this wand is in her pocket. And I started learning the skill of it, right? There's a variety of things. You got to know the kid. First of all, you got to know what makes them tick in a good way. Got to know what interests them. There has to be trust, right? I don't talk to a kid who's escalated and tell them to calm down. Let me give you example. Last week, we have a fourth grader who um, is currently homeless is in a situation. Anyways, she has always been a little bit on the escalated side, but we have a really strong relationship. So the teacher texted me, hey, she's having a little bit of trouble. Can she take a break with you? And I, by before I could even get out of my office into the classroom, I could hear her screaming in the hallway. And all I said was, 
boy, you really seem like you must be frustrated. That's mm. really hard. Mm. And she kind of looked at me and I said, hey, how about you come and come with me real quick and so we can calm down. And I took one of those spheres that you, accordion spheres, and I breathed with her with mm. the in and out, in and out, five times. And then I have a little game. It's called Find It. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's a tube that you can wipe down and sanitize. Um, <laughs> all these little pieces in it with all these beads, and you have to find and locate different items. And I said, do you want to play a game real quick? Because I, I need some help finding this. I need to help finding this little baseball. She's working, 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 working. We find it. We celebrate. Everything's great. And then I said, so what happened? And she said, I was really frustrated. And I said, why? And she dug to the core of why she was frustrated. So what did we do? We came up with a plan. So what's the plan? I said, how about this? You take a sticky note. We're going to leave it on your desk. When you feel frustrated or you're starting to feel like you're getting, stick it on you because they have little shields in this classroom for COVID. Stick it on your shield and that'll tell your teacher you just need a second. She said, deal. Five minutes, no joke. From escalation to de-escalation to problem to solution to empowering the kid to their own resiliency and self and right back in the classroom. Yesterday, I swear to you, I have a picture on my phone. She wrote a poem about me. And I told I told a joke that was so funny and made a chicken croak. <laughs> she wrote my heart. I'm like, you're hitting me right in the heart right now. Like jokes and make chickens croak, like you're killing it. And today she was getting on the after school bus and she was sitting outside and she was crying. And the bus driver was trying to talk to her. I said, I got this. Let me talk to her. What's wrong? We gave brand new bikes to all first graders today. And how exciting it was, you all. It was amazing. And her sister was in first grade. And she was upset because she was afraid her sister was going to hurt herself on this new bike. Mm -hmm. So I brought her sister out and I said, are you, are you going to be safe? Yes. That's all it took. That's it. Mm -hmm. Now, people are like, well, that's not a normal reaction for that. No, because she's in a traumatized brain. She, her, It's swirling around there. And that's literally it. And it takes... Skill, time, and practice. And it also takes apologizing to kids a lot. I remember you tell, sharing a story with me uh, previously about some special socks that you had and, oh, and, and, and how they helped you de-escalate a situation. Can you, can you tell us about that? I love that story. Well, I'm a trauma-informed nerd. That's it. Like, you know, when you have trauma-informed socks, it's real bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, my wife thought it was funny. I, I'm sure people have seen the social media ads where you get your face, people's faces and animals on socks. I actually have two pairs and they both have my dogs on it. One has one has Louie, which is a bigger dog, and one has uh, Frank, which is my bulldog. You all, those can de-escalate a kid in a minute. I mean, mm -hmm. I pull those socks up and I'm like, hey, have you seen these socks? And the kid's just like, bam. What? They're like, I'm like, it's my dog. Do you want to see a picture on my phone? Let me show you a picture of my dog on my phone. And we start showing, and that's it. And then I'll say, so what happened? Like, that's it. And then we get to the core of what happened. And I think that we don't ask kids enough. That's right. Yeah. Like, so, so let me, let me ask you then, let me just clarify. So the girl was crying, uh, not because she was trying to escape something or not because she was trying to get something. Oh, see where I'm going. <laughs> Well, it had to be a function of behavior, right? Right, Beth? Well, yeah, right? the function of behavior was she was worried about her sister getting hurt. Right. Um, and isn't that amazing that if it had gone a different way, when you have this compassion of this girl, and you could make so many wrong judgments about what that behavior was about. 
And I think, Beth, that's key to say that we do the same thing to the parents in our school. Absolutely. So many aspects of our parents. And I'm guilty of it sometimes. Um, And I love to tell this story about misperception. When I waited tables when I first moved to Nashville, just south of the city, um, it was in a very affluent area. And I came to a table and this guy had a trucker hat on. And I was like, oh, no, like not one of the country bumpkins. <laughs> so just, just wait till you find out who. Anyway, so he said, I'm like, hey, how are you, Matthew? How can I help you? Um, and then I looked at his watch and it was all diamonds. And I'm like, Alan Jackson was sitting at the table with his family. <laughs> I thought it was some country farmer from down south of Nashville. And I thought, shame on me, right? That was before I was an educator, before I knew about trauma form, before I knew any of that. But I go back to think that happens all the time in schools. Parents pull up and automatically our bias kicks in. And I think when when we understand bias as a it's a function of our brain for efficiency, right? We, we departmentalize information so we can retrieve it as fast as possible to make meaning of whatever it is we're trying to process. And sometimes our brain processes information and effectively out of safety for ourselves. And sometimes that misconception or that bias creeps into our brains, can project itself into the world we live. And I think sometimes we have to be so cautious um, with kids and adults and peers and, and colleagues. Um, it's, 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 it's a very intense thing that if we don't identify it, it can really get in the way. So reflecting on this journey that you've been on, and one of the things that I love that you, you've shared with me before is, is how you're always learning and, and changing things as you go. And, um, you know, it's not just you get there and you're done, but on this journey that you've been through, what are some of the unexpected things that you've learned in the process? I've learned how to be a better dad and husband. I mean, seriously, like uh, a better human. I mean, all around, like, I'm going to be honest, I wasn't afraid to give the 20% wave there in my late 20s, early 30s when I was driving. And 20% wave is particularly this finger here. Um, I I was a person that was kind of on the verge, like, I'm not going to let you get me. Um, Not not when I was teaching, but prior to teaching. And I just realized, dang, y'all, there's a lot of good in this world. And there's a lot of great things happening. And kids bring so much that we can learn from. And I think all the time, if I have just one ounce of resiliency that some of the kids have that show up to school every day, smiling, like, you know, we all have our own, we all have our own trauma and, and experiences. And, um, but man, being able to see things through a, a, a grateful lens and, you know, people say all the time, oh, you must be stressed out. No, really, I'm not. Um, and I think that goes to another key piece is because self-care is a priority, you all. And in this work, if we we talk about self-care and it's talked about all the time, you know, go go to yoga, go have a glass of wine, go soak in the bathtub. Great. Those are great things. But that may not be self-care. Self-care is long term sustainability of being able to meet your the needs of yourself, your families and the people you are around. And so uh, I learned very quickly that I was burning out um, full on full throttle all the time. And. You know, my wife and I made an investment very on. We used to camp and we sold our camper and we bought this little bitty cabin where there's no Internet. Um, there's no cell phone service. We don't have TV. Um, we go there and it, uh, it requires disconnection and connection, disconnection from those things. We need to disconnect and connection to my family and my own in my own child 
and for 18 months, my children. Um, and that's important. And people are like, how do you do that? I'm like, well, no, nothing works. Like my cell phone doesn't even work. Um, and I think we have to do that more often as educators. We feel like we have to be on the beck and call every moment of every day, every night, never even we can't because it's not sustainable. Great. You know, uh, Casey just said something here that I think is tremendous. The last thing, um, kids are often our best teachers. If we can humble ourselves to accept the learning, um, they're eager to provide. And I just so resonate with that. Uh, and it sounds like you are a perfect example of doing that over and over. Um, it, it's really beautiful. Yeah, she hit that. She hit the nail on the head. I tell people all the time, I've always learned more from my kids than I feel like they've ever learned from me. Um, and just when you think, oh, man, you can't see something, you see it. And it's like, how is this child come to school every day smiling and ready to uh, learn or how? And if they don't I understand, I've got your back. Um, it definitely it definitely that's that's a valid, valid point, uh, Casey, and one that we all as educators need to have in the forefront. So and what? Parents. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, so, what advice would you give to somebody starting to head down this road? Um, you know, based on your own experience. Oh man, first you got to be willing to shake things up a little bit. You got to have a little bit of a risk take, right? Um, and some of that comes into using the science and what does it look like in an applicable way. And I think some of the resources you mentioned earlier are spot on resources in, in the books that you all mentioned um, about that. I think trying things and just see, um, connect to kids on purpose, like make an effort, whether that's at the door, whether that's noticing they have a new haircut, whether they have new shoes, whether they have a frown on their face and just saying, boy, it looks like you might be sad. Is something going on? Right, like taking those moments, um, and then secondly, learn the pause, like just pause. When you feel that escalation happening, know how to de-escalate. And then also triggers, know your triggers, y'all. That's something we don't talk about in education. You got to know what, when, what triggers you have as an educator um, and be able to navigate those. When it comes to application, just look at relationships as the foundation and start building off of that. Mm -hmm. and dig into the neuroscience and to the, the literature out there because it's, it's, I mean, y'all, it's rolling out so fast. You know, Bruce Perry, he, when I had him on, Dr. Bruce Perry, when I had him on my podcast, he talked about their current research and the micro interactions. Um, they're studying those positive interactions, knuckle bumps, high fives. Great to see you. I love your shoes. You got a new haircut. Those that if kids can experience those continuously throughout a school day, they actually have a greater impact on the student's mental health than actual therapeutic sessions 50 minutes a week. Wow. Wow. It's amazing. You think about as an educator, how many touch points you can make with kids every year. That's why we're world changers. I mean, that's why we do what we do. That's great. So uh, speaking to the world, and the world has been an odd place for some time. Uh, let's call it 2020. But you know, we, we've had we've had COVID. No, mil two million years, whatever it is. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, you know, we've had obviously the the crisis related to COVID, and we've had racial tensions, and we've had you know a, a lot going on. E even now, things continue to be uncertain, and uh, 
you know, this is a lot of stress, a lot of trauma on, on kids, on parents, on teachers, on staff, on everyone. And of course, you're, you're back in school and a lot of places are not back in school right now. One of the big concerns that I have, and I've heard uh, Dr. Lori DeSantel talk about this as well, is that as we're getting kids back in school, as we've all experienced this, this kind of life-changing trauma of, of what's been happening in 2020, we could see escalations because of you know kids kids not feeling safe, uh, kids in hypervigilant modes due to trauma, um, and we could see an uptake in in what people might refer to as kind of distressed behaviors or challenging behaviors. And uh, you know how are you how are you handling that, and how are how would you advise others? Because I'm sure this has been really challenging as you've been getting getting back to school. So I'm gonna be honest. It was a it was a misjudgment that I made. I thought kids were going to come back on fire. They're not. We've had, besides the escalation I told you about, which wasn't even an escalation, we've had nothing and we've been back a month. So what I would also say is kids are so resilient. Mm. And kids wanted to be back. Was I 100% support? No, because there's a lot of pieces. But you all, kids have come back and they've blown us away. And my staff and we've been talking about it like, I mean, literally what we're worried the most about is getting kids to the bathroom in a safe way because mm-hmm. we have a lot for social distancing and, uh, and, and, and contact tracing. And I will tell you, we have kids who, when they went out, were escalated and have come back and are not. Really? Wow. Very strange. Now, we have a lot. We, we have 45% of our kids that are virtual. So we only came back with 50% of our mm-hmm. kids. They're smaller. There's a lot of factors, um, but we haven't seen that. I've talked to schools that have, mm-hmm, and I mm-hmm. think it's something we should all be prepared for um, because it's stressful. You all, my child right now, it, he goes to our own public school. Man, it's been stressful on my wife, who is not a teacher. She's an engineer. And mm-hmm. like, oh, my goodness, like he won't talk to his teachers like he talks to me. Now, what's the problem? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's stressful. Yeah, I, I can't help but play the what if game here, and that is – it's great to hear that. It's great to hear that you didn't have the experience you thought you might have. Mm-hmm. But what if you didn't have this philosophy? What if you weren't a trauma-informed school? What if kids didn't know they were going to a safe place? And I would just postulate that, that there, there are schools that will have a lot of difficulty where you may not be. Um, it'd be really interesting to see data on that. But I'm, I'm sure that, you know, just, you know, from your own experience, um, there's some relationship there. You know, kids that have learned that your school is a safe place for them. And I tell people, this has been a foundation that we've built. It just didn't happen. So it's almost like we prepared for a pandemic as a school, right? Like we put all of this investment and it's true, Guy, you hit a nail on the head. And I've heard from educators around the country whose schools are not. And it has been a struggle, right? And I tell people, like even when we went out, um, I made it that first week we were so most people don't know, right before we went out for COVID in March, there was a huge tornado that came through Nashville. Mm. Destroyed school. I mean, it was awful. And so we, right on the backs of that, we were back two days and then COVID hit. Mm. That next week, my goal was to call every single kid in my school, 312 phone calls. And I contacted every family. I talked about 60%. Why? Because I had to make that connection. I knew it was important. My staff, their only goal was to contact every family to make sure they were okay. And I think that that's because it's who we are. So when a lot of schools were having a hard time during those times, we just kept trucking with our own. We got to make sure they have food. 
If they were damaged by the tornado, we got to make sure they have shelter. Um, they may need us to drop things off on their porch. Like then after we got all of that, then we started worrying about, okay, what is teaching going to look like? Mm -hmm. um, how I met Ross Green was because I like, y'all, schoolwork right now is on the back burner for a little bit. You just need to make sure you're taking care of yourself and everybody's safe mm -hmm. um, because it's who we are. And, and, that's so important. That's so important. You, you know, my, my kids are both now past elementary school, but I think if they weren't, I'd be moving to, to, to Tennessee right now. <laughs> what, what a great, what a great program. And I'd be like, uh, let's go have a conversation real quick. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. So I want to remind people, we've got just a couple more minutes here. And if you have any final questions, feel free to uh, put those in the comments. Uh, this has been a fantastic discussion. Uh, I always feel really, really inspired kind of listening to the amazing work that you've been doing. Um, so, you know, are there other things that you would want to leave people with in terms of, you know, thinking about, you know, one, you know, how to bring these things forward, but but just in terms of as, as parents might be getting back to school with their own kids? I think the first thing I would say, I would be amiss if I acted like I was really this person who did all of this. My staff, you all, and the staff of my school that I get to work with, they don't work for me. I work with them, um, are remarkable. They are gifted educators who have a heart and a passion for kids and learning and, and ensuring they, um, they are there as a strong, stable, nurturing relationship. So it took time to get the staff that's here. But man, if I could have all of them behind me right now, I would except I would probably kick them out because it's 520 and now nah, there's no badge of honor for working here until eight o'clock at night. But to be honest, it's my it, it's the staff um, and, and my teachers. They are remarkable. Um, and and I, I can never affirm them enough because I, as a leader, I'm only as strong as those people around me. And I'm going to be honest, I feel like a really strong leader. And it's not because of me and my skills. It's because of the faculty and staff that I get to work with. Um, in any moment, I could say, hey, I've got to go. I had an emergency. And I would never worry about anything at school. Um, and I mean, adults jump in and do amazing things. So mm -hmm. I have to say that. Secondly, I want people to jump on this journey and just consume and research and read as much as you can um, because it's ever-changing, uh, even right now. Research is coming out that's that's new and updated. Well, l let's hope, too, some of those amazing staff members that you have on your team, uh, as, as they grow and, and become ambitious for other things, that they might go off and become administrators and, and, and uh, take over other schools and, and help them to, to change as well. That's really amazing. I want to bring up a question here we have from Casey, which is, can you recommend ACES uh, resources related to students with disabilities? Hmm. I, think the <laughs> I think disability or not disability, it's just how we should treat all kids, mm -hmm. right? I think understanding some of the characteristics of some disabilities is really important. Um, but also there's so many nuances with kids. It's really getting to know the kid. Like I, I hate, uh, I shouldn't use the word hate. It, it frustrates me when we put kids in boxes because they're on the spectrum or they have this disability. I think we have to be cautious. I think when we get to know kids and operate in a mindset that we've just discussed for the last hour and 20 minutes, you see a kid for a kid. You don't see a kid that has a disability, right? Um, and I think sometimes um, our perception or our bias of kids who have disabilities actually prevent the kids from being successful, not 
child with a disability. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I would say if you look at ACEs research, it doesn't discriminate between students with disability and students with not, right? The strategies and things are the same with nuances of individual kids. Mm -hmm. And and she elaborated a little bit on that and said that she works with a lot of students with complex communication challenges and that it makes it hard, um, kind of underappreciated trauma. Um, but not found a lot of good tools to help with the evaluation part. So I don't know if you, you know what I wish I could tell you, Casey, I wish I did. I don't know, but I can also tell you that if you follow up with me, um, I have a team that could help with that. Um, where, where would people follow up with you? Um, they can follow. I'm on, active on Twitter. I'm active on Instagram. If you follow me on Instagram, you're probably not going to get a lot of professional stuff. You just see pictures of me and my kid and our boat fishing. Um, <laughs> But uh, Twitter, I'm very active on social media. If you want to follow Paradigm Shift Education, that's actually um, a consulting piece that I have when I do speaking. Um, Or you can follow Matthew Portel, which is my personal page. Again, you're probably going to see a lot of fishing pictures. Um, But Twitter is where I'm most active professionally. Um, And then what I would also say is um, our OTs in our schools are underutilized. Mm -hmm. Um, Occupational therapists, that's their wheelhouse. Um, especially when it comes to communication and being able to build systems for students who may have communication um, deficits for whatever reason. Uh, we use ours. I mean, we do a lot, even thumbs up and thumbs down. Um, it's again, coming back to the kid, but I would, I would highly recommend that tap it into your OT um, and really figure out uh, specifically for that kid, maybe what the communication piece is. Mm-hmm. Like I said, what's your Twitter handle? I'm at principalist. And that's actually the same for, Instagram, and it means the most principal, principal EST, get principal. That's (laughs) the most creative I could get. And it's great. uh, great. I would love to to hear from you. And um, whoever asked that, Casey, again, reach out to me and I'll kind of connect you with some people who help us. Fantastic. So I always like to save a last question for Beth and she sometimes tries to get in like a five part question. So if she does, (laughs) we'll, 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 we'll have to work on that. But Beth, you're muted right now, but what is what is the question that you've just been dying to ask? Um, oh, there were too many, but I, I have one. I'll settle them before I um, do my question. I'm going to say I, I think following you and follow following the Facebook page, the Trauma Informed uh, Educators Network, <laughs> and listening to the podcast and and, and so forth a lot of the questions that have come up through here, you get, people get connected. You connect people to other resources. So it's not like you're following one one person who's gonna answer this one question. You get a, a breath of, um, a breath, not breathing breath, but you know, wide array of, of resources and help. So thank you for doing those things. Um, it's really so helpful. Um, so I will ask you one last question. So you, you've talked a little bit about the parents and my sense was that over the course of the five years, your relationship with parents has evolved. And you gave the example with the one, how you explain the science, the neuroscience. Um, can you talk just a little bit, t- tell us what you would recommend knowing now and how, what you do now, what would you recommend to people in terms of uh, improving that parent um, school relationship? I think um, you have to be purposeful. Just like I said, I literally reached out to every single family when the pandemic started. And, and I, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, I was shocked. Um, somebody just, some of the parents just needed somebody to talk to. Parents that would never tell me things just 
opened. Um, and I would always say things like, thank you for sharing that with me. I'm sure that was really difficult. Um, and so I think, uh, and, and being authentic, you know, yeah. like I, I told you before we got on, I'm like, this tie is choking me. Like I, I'm just an authentic human being and I'm better <laughs> than anybody else. And being authentic, car rider lines is where I have so many conversations with parents as a principal, both pick up and drop off. Um, when you sense a need, making sure you do everything to try to meet that need. Um, we have a family resource center here. We give food, clothing, diapers. I mean, we we do it all. Um, our school is responsible for that. Not necessarily, but yes, we are. Um, I think having authentic conversations, I think hearing parents out when we think um, one way, just hearing them out and try to dig deeper into um, seeking first to understand then before we're trying to be understood. Um, because some parents, honestly, we call them every day and then we wonder why they quit answering the phone, right? Because we're not calling them to say, you know what? I think your kid is super awesome. Mm -hmm. I want to thank you for letting us be part of their education. We do those calls um, because at the end of the day, if you're calling and saying so-and-so is really disruptive and, and that's all you call for, I almost said a bad word there, but <laughs> I don't either, right? Like, and so I think these little subtle pieces of connecting with families is it's purposeful and it has to be, and it has to be authentic. And uh, it's not all about blame either. It's not blaming the child, blaming the parents. And, and so often those are the, the interactions that people have, mm -hmm. you know, their child's being blamed, they're being blamed. Um, you know, authentic relationships are so critical. As a foster parent of 18 months of two boys who did not, they did start, they started in my school. It's actually how I ended up being a foster parent. Um, and then out of fairness for them, they couldn't sneeze without being me being told. So I'm like, let's try to see what happens. And I remember those calls and I remember going, oh man, like, I know it's true. It's valid. He mm. does do that. So here's what we do that works. Um, but it, we have to be cognizant. Again, if we operate in the mindset that people are doing the best they can at that time, it changes how we, you know, if parent, if parents with students who struggle could fix it, they would, right? Like if they could just snap and make it happen. Right. They so um, again, most of our parents are doing the best they can with what they have and in the situation they're in and the skills that they have. I'm going to be honest. I'm not the best parent all the time. I mean, who is like, right. um, I make mistakes with my own child. I Absolutely. Get Say things I'm like why did I just say that like oh my gosh um, and so I think just approaching people in authentic way especially parents and being able to have hard conversations or allowing them to have hard conversations I should say with you without being defensive Mm -hmm. That's great. So I want to share a comment here from my friend, Rick, who said, uh, I love your philosophy outlook and taking ownership of your community's needs. Fish on, Matthew. So you know, there, there's some encouragement for, for something to do this weekend. Uh, this has been absolutely wonderful. I really appreciate you joining us today. I want to encourage the people that are watching this either live or, or, or as we uh, make this available to watch later, you know, if you're a parent, share this with your school, share this with your teachers. You know, if you're a teacher, share this with your parents, you know, the more we can share and get more like-minded people, the more we can influence change. And, you know, this is a change worth making. I mean, the, the results that you've had and the work that you've done has really had an impact. And, and I'm sure that through a lot of hard work, it's really satisfying to see the positive impact that you're making. And we really appreciate the ability to, to talk to you today. So thank you so much, Matthew. And thank, thank you guys for all you're doing and for everybody that was here. And what I want to tell you is you're doing an amazing job. 
we are our biggest critics. And at the end of the day, we all have to stand in a space of going, we're doing good work. And that's for everybody who's been commenting and been on the call. If you're an educator, I promise you, you're doing great work. Um, it's difficult. That doesn't change. It doesn't, it hasn't gotten any easier for us at Fall Hamilton. Um, but, but just know that you are doing an amazing thing if you are an educator or working anywhere in the capacity with kids. Thank you so much for that. And and Beth, thank you for uh, co-hosting here today. Uh, really sure. appreciate it. So I'm going to let you both go back into the uh, the studio waiting room here uh, while I give some announcements. So thank you again for uh, participating today. Uh, and I thank you all for watching. I hope you've enjoyed today's presentation. Uh, I know I really did. And, you know, as, as Matthew talked about, you know, why he started, uh, you know, why he started doing uh, these kinds of events, I, I kind of uh, agreed with him. It's a great opportunity to learn. Uh, and we continue to have more great events scheduled coming up. Uh, in two weeks, we're going to be talking with Professor Andrew McDonald. Uh, and he has written a book about the low arousal way of working with people. Uh, and the book is called A Reflective Journey. We're going to be doing an interview with uh, Professor uh, McDonald. Really excited about that. We've had an opportunity to uh, look into the low arousal method recently. And it's a really great approach that reflects uh, on what we're doing and how we're involved in situations. So really looking forward to that and encourage you to join us again here for our next event. And as always, please share, um, be safe, and we look forward to seeing you again. So thank you all so much, and we look forward to it next time.